today I welcome back to our show, Aaron Gunn. The last time we had Aaron on, he was making a push to become the next leader of the BC Liberal Party. Hailing from Victoria, BC, Aaron is an independent journalist and filmmaker. He's an advocate for taxpayers and wants to bring common sense back to BC and to our nation. Aaron has an impressive social media presence. 13,000 followers on Instagram, 17,000 followers on Twitter, 32,000 subscribers to YouTube, and 107 followers on Facebook. Aaron is also the producer and director of the hit online series, Politics, Politics Explained, which leads us to the focus of today's show. In October of last year, 2022, Aaron released Vancouver is Dying, an hour-long documentary that explores the surge of violent crime, homelessness, and drug addiction in the heart of one of Canada's wealthiest cities here in Vancouver. As of today, the documentary has amassed almost 2.5 million views and dives into the reality of what is happening in our city and who's responsible for its demise. So let's dive right into it. Vancouver, Vancouver is dying as part of your Politics Explained series. As I said earlier, it's a 55 minutes long film. I got a chance to watch it on my flight home a couple of weeks ago. It's had almost 2.5 million views, which is unbelievable. Let's start by, for those people who haven't seen it, watched it for our audience, tell us a little bit about the film. Well, the film takes a look at, uh, I think whatever everyone who lives here has visited Victoria and been to the downtown east side, especially what's happening in front of people's faces, which which explores the, the increases in crime, homelessness, and rampant drug addiction in the city and uh, tries to examine and investigate the root causes behind that. Um, so that, that pretty much, I think, sums it up. The first half is a really heavy focus on the crime statistics, how it's changed, how policing has changed, support for policing, and the revolving door justice system, and then kind of takes pulls the curtain back and looks under the hood at how hard drugs and hard drug addiction is kind of fueling this increase and some of the policies that the provincial and municipal government have uh, implemented over the past 20 years and how, uh, from my perspective, after doing the research, uh, clearly hasn't been working. Okay. Now, your Politics Explained series is a total year in season two. There's six films. This is obviously the one that's in, in between season one and season two has had the most amount of, uh, of interest. What was your inspiration for filming this in the first place? Well, I think it's someone that's grown up in BC. I split my time between Victoria and Vancouver and the same thing's happening over there, but just at a much smaller scale, obviously, is watching the same policies being implemented over and over again at greater expense to taxpayers. And yet, as someone who's living and visiting and spending time in these cities, the problem is clearly getting worse. And yet, uh, if whether you're watching the news or whether you know during the last provincial election you watched the debate, uh, instead of having, having vigorous discussions about these problems and people suggesting or, um, or, or putting forward new approaches and new ideas, we just keep recy recycling the same policies. Or in some cases, like in the, the case of the former mayor, uh, argue that the reason why the problem is getting worse is because we're not going far enough or we're not doing right. uh, enough of the same policies that we're implementing. And to me, that didn't add up. It didn't make sense. And as someone who, who loves British Columbia and, and coastal BC specifically, because it's my home, it's also mm -hmm. quite frustrating to see the, you know, almost, you know, zombie-like apocalypse happening in part of, parts of these cities, which are otherwise some of the wealthiest and most beautiful parts of the entire world. Yeah, well said. 
When did you start filming uh, Vancouver's Dying? Filming started, well, so uh, to take one step back, the entire series we film all at once to save costs. We're filming all six episodes concurrently. So filming on uh, that season began in, in April. And then I believe it was October 5th, Vancouver's Dying was the first episode we released. Okay. And we maybe wrapped filming around July. Okay. And then you had a, a post-production period oh, from exactly. July till October. Um, the uh, how, how long was the actual raw footage? I mean, the, the finished film is 55 minutes, but what what uh, how much did you have? How much material did you have to work through? Yeah, so that's an interesting story. So when, when we first, a couple of years ago, I had kind of pitched Vancouver's Dying and wanted to do it. The idea was to kind of take a deeper dive into these issues that I think required some investigation and explanation between uh, 10 and 15 minutes long. And uh, they, there's a bit of mission creep here. The episodes keep getting longer and longer. This one was obviously just under an hour. Uh, it was the most interviews we ever did. I think we did 16 interviews. They didn't all make the final final cut. Maybe there's snippets of, of 12 different interviews or so in there. Uh, and then footage of us walking uh, in the downtown east side and things like that as well. So I'm not sure the the total uh, amount of footage, but there were 16 interviews filmed. Each interview probably averages like 30 minutes. So um, that's about eight hours of interviews right there. And then mm -hmm. plus the B-roll and all that kind of stuff on yeah. top of that. Yeah, it's, it's tough to get that condensed down into a format because, I mean, once you... If it was a three-hour film, it'd probably be very interesting for us to want to nerd out on it. But you'd probably lose. You wouldn't get the reception of like two point five million views. Did you expect this kind of reaction? I mean, two point five million. I mean, you've produced lots of videos and films uh, through your career. I gotta assume this is your largest following yet. It's by far the the uh, the biggest video I've ever had for anything that's like long form. I've had yeah. some pretty viral short videos, but okay. as far as long form, as far as YouTube specifically, which yeah. is where this video really took off, uh, nothing comes close. And it really, I try to set my expectations uh, pretty broad because you, you never know what the algorithm is going to do with the video, what people are going to react to. It's actually a good kind of way of figuring out what's what issues are on people's minds. Yeah, uh, but it totally kind of blew the roof off of anything that that I was expecting. This was um, above and beyond any expectations that I had, that's for sure. Yeah, well, well, congratulations. It's it's nice to see you being able to take a grassroots uh, kind of approach to this. You, I know you put your heart and soul into it and to be able to have that kind of success, um, it's well-deserved. And it's one of the reasons why I do Coastal Front because I like, I like showcasing success stories, not vilifying them. So um, do you mind uh, just taking a minute to walk us through like the process? Like did you, when we look at that final film, was what you produced what you had envisioned at the beginning or was it kind of like it did it take some turns along the way from when you first started it took a lot of turns so we start out i start out with um you know a rough storyboard before we start shooting of where i think the episode might go and then obviously as you do the various interviews and add new interviews you get answers that you didn't expect to the questions and right. and it, it shifts as the story that you're trying to reveal shifts and that's definitely what happened uh, in this case. One one of the things, there's a couple things that really shocked me when making this documentary. One was the clear connection uh, between the increases in crime and drug addiction that were so, um, that were articulated directly to me by recovering addicts um, who, were, who had been on the street literally 18 months earlier. And it said, yeah, you know, I had a addiction that was costing me $300 a day. So every day I had to go out and steal $300 worth of worth of goods. And if anyone got in my way, then 
you know, they were kind of collateral damage to, to that drug seeking behavior. Um, that to me was, I mean, it was always something that I kind of thought was there, that connection, but just to be put that clearly and nonchalantly, I would right. say by someone who was actually living it, uh, kind of firsthand account was, was kind of shocking. And I would also say the other thing was regarding, and I'm sure we'll get into this a bit more, but kind of the, the so-called safe supply of, of drugs and, I was told by a couple of people off the record that these drugs were being um, basically just handed out like candy on Halloween, but that they were being uh, turned around and resold by the addicts to dealers who then went and resold those uh, drugs that are, that are kind of like, I don't know what you want to call it, like soft opioids or whatever on, high, on college campuses, on, on, you know, high school grounds, these types of things, the people that are maybe just beginning their addiction for looking for almost like a painkiller. And then the addicts were using that money to go out and buy fentanyl, which was uh, the drug that they were actually addicted to, the high they were actually addicted to and what and what they wanted. So we were basically just uh, funding their fentanyl addiction while also providing a new source of drugs, which could be used by dealers to sell uh, to, like I said, people on university, college campuses, that kind of stuff. And that was uh, told to me again by recovering addicts. And then also people on the street of downtown east side Vancouver that I just asked and they just nonchalantly the guy started ringing off the prices that you would get for these so-called safe supply drugs on the black market in Vancouver or you could send it to Edmonton and get more money or send it to Regina yeah and um so I had no idea I was going to to encounter this level of, of of detail so that so um there's a lot of surprises making this and yeah and some episodes more than other but uh others but uh, this project specifically was, I uncovered, uh, encountered things and uncovered things that I was not expecting. Well, what I'm going to ask you about those in a few minutes is it almost seems like, remember that old books, those books you'd read as a kid called Choose Your, Choose Your Own Adventure? Yeah. You know, you get to the end of this page and it says, go to page 12 if you want to jump off the rock or if you want yeah. to jump in the water. Sounds like oh, that was kind of an almost analogy of what this filming this was like. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. And it's, it's, um, it was one of these things where I would, I would find that I really wanted to talk to someone and work to get the interview. And then once getting that interview, they would usually open a couple other doors. Right. Um, because they were in, in the space, in the addiction space, talking about these kind of issues. Um, so was there anybody that you interviewed that you're really glad you interviewed? They were maybe, they, they made the final cut, but they weren't even on your radar at the beginning of this process? There was a couple, but there, none was bigger than Marshall Smith. Who okay. Is, um, at the time, I didn't know who he was. He yeah. was the chief of staff to the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction in Alberta. But just like five or six years ago, he was living on the downtown east side of Vancouver, right. addicted to drugs and alcohol. And he's since actually been promoted. He's now the chief of staff to Daniel Smith, to the, to the premier of Alberta. Wow. And I didn't know who he was. And his story was so powerful. I bet, yeah. Um, and he's, he also grew up in, in Victoria. And uh, then he was working a senior level in the BC government. And yeah. then... Uh, his alcohol, uh, drinking, and cocaine use just got out of hand. And next thing you know, he was living in a shipping container in, in the downtown east side. And he, in addition to just laying out all of these these issues, um, he also, uh, it, you know, now that he's in Alberta government, has a, has a kind of knows what's going on behind the scenes with some of the activists, the kind of poverty industrial complexes, I like to call them, and also had connections with, with the... Um, the VPD, which was able to set up kind of the, the tour that we got at the downtown east side. And then, of course, I ended up speaking with the um, chief of the Vancouver Police Union. 
as well, Ralph mm-hmm. Kaiser, which was yeah. also interesting. Yeah, those were both great interviews. Yeah. Do you mind sharing what the cost was for this production? Yeah, so the so I'd say roughly fifteen thousand dollars. The wow. the again they're filmed concurrently, so the most of the money is raised on a on like a season basis. Um, so we go out and raise money for the season. There's probably it was, I that's probably impressive. Less than that because there wasn't as much travel as normal. I mean, yeah. some of our other episodes were fifteen thousand dollars. That's incredible. I mean, like for those folks who haven't seen it yet, you watch this film and it and it's like it'd be something I would expect to come up on my. Uh, menu options under uh, under Netflix, and for fifteen thousand dollars, is incredible. Good for you to bootstrap that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's not easy to do it for that, and uh, certainly no one's becoming rich on it. I do should also give a shout out. I feel like an incredible editor, who's who's just amazing. Who's that? Uh, Grant Woods is his name. Okay, uh, if he does other stuff. If anyone's like looking yeah. to get a project edited, but um, and then I got some camera guys in Vancouver who uh, didn't have a ton of experience, but were really interested in helping out. And we did a little training and, and they just delivered big time. And wow. it's uh, so I, I a great group of people around me as well. Yeah. Well, that's great. CTV uh, categorized your film as both popular and polarizing. Now, obviously at two and a half million views, it is uh, certainly popular. Do you feel like it's a polarizing film? Uh, no, because uh, especially by the, <laughs> by the metrics of how the the content I'm normally producing it uh so I, I know they said that uh, I think they just you know there, there's going to be someone somewhere who doesn't like it uh, the fact of the matter is on YouTube you can give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down and 94% of people gave it a thumbs up yeah it's over 42,000 likes so you know if 94% of people uh, have a positive response to a to a video that's been viewed two and a half million times yeah. I'll take that as yeah as close to uh, you know universal uh, that's your praise test. as you're ever going to get on yeah. on anything. Hundred percent. Have any politicians commented publicly on your film? Uh, publicly, well, da- Daniel Smith um, gave a big tweet out to it and and uh, showed a lot of public support to it. I know she's been talking about it at, at all sorts of different events. Um, a series of MPs have. I don't know if. Uh, I don't want to put words in Pierre's mouth, but I know he's I know he's seen it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I shouldn't. Uh, I I know he's he's seen it. I don't, I don't know if he, he's posted about Comment, it. Or yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think this film will incite any uh, political change? Well, I think it has already incited some so. political change at the municipal level. Uh, obviously, I mean, this came out. You published this two weeks before the municipal election. And if you watch the film, you obviously make highlight the fact that um, that a lot of this demise of the downtown east side, the rising uh, uh, personal violent attacks that have been happening, all happened under the administration of uh, former Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like your film had an impact in in helping Ken Sim win? I def I definitely do. I think that's that's hard to. I mean, it had. 600,000 views in those first first two weeks, um, a plurality of which were in, in Vancouver, if not a ma- outright majority. And uh, so it, it definitely impacted the, the political landscape. Now, you know, maybe Ken Sims would have won by five points or 10 points instead of 20. It's really hard to, to get that breakdown, but it obviously had an impact. And Was it intentional to have this come out two weeks before? Is this kind of your way of like skewering Kennedy Stewart and saying, here you go, pal? 
uh, or like, was there a conver- conversation between you and Ken Sim about this? Did he even know the film was coming or was it just more a coincidence? So it, it, uh, it wasn't, so I don't have, I've never met Ken Sims or had a, had a conversation with them or, or working with anyone on their team by, by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, the only person with political connections that we interviewed was actually a council candidate for the, for the NPA. So not okay. even, not even his slate, but the, um, so the the documentary was actually supposed to come out about a month earlier and just it was delayed because it was so much longer than we expected. Now, obviously, we knew the municipal election was coming and we knew it would have greater relevance if it was if it was released before than say sure. afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we definitely wanted to get it out before the municipal election. Yeah. But it wasn't. Um, yeah, because it, it would have been it, on people's minds. It, for it sure. was on people's minds. And that's yeah. just, you, you know, that's just like any media yeah, it's smart. production. Yeah. Or you're yeah. going to put it out when, when something's topical. Yeah. You're not going to put a Christmas special out in the middle of, on Canada Day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the film focuses on Vancouver's crime, homelessness and overdose crisis. Having completed the film, um, has your perspective on these issues changed at all in any way? Uh, I think, I don't know if changed would be the right word. Definitely en- enhanced, perhaps. Uh-huh. Uh, there's, I, I spoke a little bit earlier about some of the, the, the blind spots that I had. Uh, another one being, you see some people kind of parroting this talking point that there's a drug poisoning uh, um crisis which is a narrative that i bought into which was that like uh, basically fentanyl was being uh, snuck into everybody's drugs and they didn't actually no one wanted fentanyl and then i found out when i was investigating interviewing people that fentanyl like people it's actually hard to get like heroin now in the downtown so like it's all fentanyl and uh there's and people are addicted to fentanyl and they're seeking out that you know anything about addiction and addicts i mean when you're addicted to a particular high that's that's what you want. That's mm-hmm. why you're it's the definition of, of being an addict and you'll do anything to get it. So people were actually addicted to fentanyl. It wasn't being just like snuck in the back door of people's drugs. So that was a, something that I didn't uh, understand beforehand in addition to some of the other things. But I would say from kind of 30,000 feet, the big thing that I wasn't aware of to the extent before I started the documentary was how these are all connected. Homelessness, crime, drug addiction and mental illness, how it's all the same issue. Yeah. And uh, at, at its core is, is a, a, a chronic and growing and, and really, from my perspective, a government-enabled uh, uh, addiction crisis yeah. that's going on. On that front, another thing that surprised me was was told over and over again, like a lot, the vast majority of these people have places to, like shelters that they could go to, but a lot of those shelters for obvious reasons, come with a certain set of rules that you're supposed to abide by. And, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of those people on the street who would prefer to live in kind of an open air, do whatever you want, anarchy, than abide by a certain set of rules, like no open drug use, for example, that some a lot of these shelters have for obvious reasons. Because if you don't, there's a story I interviewed a young man who had just gotten clean and needed housing. So the government said, here's a spot. They put him in one of these government-run SROs. And I think he said within 15 minutes, someone had knocked on his door and offered him to to drugs. And he said no. And then I think it was about two hours later, he about had four or five knocks on the door, and he was using drugs again. And this is Amazing. how we're treating people that yeah. 
you know, a young man who's trying to get clean, who actually got clean. And then we just threw him right back into this, lion's this den. drug infested lion's yeah. den. And um, it's just the worst of all possible worlds. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I mean, if you take a look at just the uh, the, the annual BC Coroner's uh, report of total deaths, and especially if you dive into the deaths by illicit drugs, mm -hmm. and you just see this huge rising um, death toll, mm -hmm. uh, and then you contrast that with these changes in policy to things like so-called safe supply, like clearly it's not working, mm -hmm. right? In fact, it's actually almost, it appears as though it's having the opposite effect of what it's been meant to, meant to do. We had about at the, at the uh, in year 2000, 2001, where they instituted the new policies that were focused on harm reduction or so-called harm reduction, we had about 150 overdose deaths a year in British Columbia. And yeah. now we're up over 2000. I think yeah. since 2016, more than 10,000 people who are otherwise uh, healthy, a lot of them are, you know, young in their 20s or 30s, uh, over 10,000 people dead. So we're filling up our morgues with our young people who otherwise yeah. could be uh, you know, taxpaying members of society, raising families and all that yeah. good stuff. Uh, these are, you know, sons, daughters, mothers, fathers. Way, way more deaths than COVID. Wait, I mean, yeah. way more. This and is where this is where my cynical side says not all lives actually have the same meaning or value to politicians. They may claim that they are, do, but if you look at amount, the amount of energy and resources that were put into protecting the general population towards COVID, and, and then you look at the lack of energy and resources put into towards, uh, you know, stopping this, this, uh, this death of through illicit drugs. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine if our, we took like a 10th of the effort that was placed on COVID, which had a far lower death rate mm -hmm. and put that effort in towards this, we'd have a lot better results. And the other thing is, you know, there's a lot of people in this country, especially ironically, those on, on the left and the NDP that like to, to always be attacking two-tier healthcare in this country. You shouldn't have two-tier healthcare for, you know, it creates inequality and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'll tell you something. If Justin Trudeau or Jagmeet Singh's kid, uh, God forbid, gets addicted to hard drugs, they're not getting a safe supply from the government. They're going to a, a, a you know, a, a five-star abstinence-based drug recovery facility. If any member of parliament gets addicted to drugs, they're getting sent to, paid for by taxpayers, to an abstinence-based recovery program like they've been doing to get people off opioids for, yeah, for decades. Absolutely. And uh, I had Brian Day, who's the head of Canby Surgery on here, mm -hmm. and they're shut down from treating uh, British Columbians for private uh, surgeries, which I've had. I've mm -hmm. got my knee surgery done there before they had this injunction by the BC government come in. Mm -hmm. But the irony is, if you get hurt through WCB or you get hurt through ICBC, it's their two biggest customers at Canby Surgery. Mm -hmm. so, so it's amazing how like the Canada, BC's own crown corporations can send their files to private healthcare to get treated immediately. So it doesn't have to wait in the queue at the health, at the public healthcare system, but you and I can't go and get that same treatment on our own dime. Yeah. And I think those are both examples of, of the, there's this general kind of level of contradictions and hypocrisy in our, in our, in our political system and our political culture. And um, usually those get weaned out through robust discussion and debate because usually the rational, you know, argument rises to the top. You'd like to see the truth would eventually come to the surface. But uh, I don't think we're having enough of those debates and discussion, which is why, you know, things like this that you're doing here at Coastal Front, I think, is, yeah, is so important. I agree. Obviously, we need more more of it because it's the, 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 
kind of discussions aren't happening in the in the mainstream media. Yeah, I agree. Well, we're going to go into that in our political conversation. And let's just carry on with uh, Vancouver's dying. In the film, you took aim at politicians. And in particular, I noticed the number of times you took aim at Kennedy Stewart. Do you feel the problems that this film highlights are a result of inaction by the former mayor and council? Yeah, I think they exacerbated problems that began actually 20 years ago, like uh-huh. uh, with the, the four pillars uh, approach where they, uh, for those of your listeners who don't know what, what that is, they were supposed to, there's this new approach because we had a drug crisis because 150 people a year were dying, which now seems like an incredible result. Uh, and they instituted this four pillars. It was supposed to be uh, probably going to prevent like enforcement, prevention, um, harm reduction, and I think treatment. Yeah. And it's pretty much been all harm reduction because it's all wrapped up in this in this kind of leftist ideology. And uh, so I think the problem was getting progressively worse. And then it just basically um, got put on fast track under under the, the former mayor. And one of the things that he did most transparently, I think, is completely destroy the relationship with the police. Uh, so as it pertains to crime, he yeah. did not the the he, he did not support the police. He called them systemically racist. Mm-hmm. He um, he was trying to he attempted to cut their funding. Obviously, the province had to step in and actually uh, basically force the municipal government to to uh, reverse those budget cuts that they were trying to do on the police. Um, so uh, I think that you know not supporting the police was really a, a transparent, and then just continuing. Um, the same kind of progressive obsession with so-called uh, safe supply and harm reduction. Yeah. Um, definitely didn't turn things around, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I liked part of your film where you actually showed visually, like you showed the heads of the Vancouver Police Department mm-hmm. to highlight the fact that this is like, this is like a, a very diversified group of people leading the VPD. And I, I, in the same way that I, I, why we started Coastal Front was to uh, initially was to to uh, champion business leaders in our community uh, because they, they get vilified. I hate how our Vancouver Police Department and actually our law enforcement in general in BC gets vilified because they're probably the most progressive, diverse law enforcement you could mm-hmm. find in the planet. And yet they just take the same rap as some, you know, militarized law enforcement agency in the, you know, Midwest in the states. Not even the same. The amount of uh, abuse they have to deal with, and it's uh, it's a it's a thank it's a very difficult job in many cases. It's a thankless job. It's a dangerous job, as yeah. we saw in 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 Burnaby and and in Ontario a couple weeks ago now. Yeah. And um, so it's they really and to then not have the support and be attacked by your own mayor and council yeah. is obviously very demoralizing and you know good luck trying to recruit people because yeah. they need to they need to keep it you know yeah. there's a job shortage here to begin with across the entire economy yeah and uh, you need police officers so it's it's um yeah i think he he and i think voters uh you know issued their verdict on on how he was managing things yeah they sure did uh, Aaron, do you think there'll be any noticeable change with this new mayor and council? You've got Ken Sim and the ABC party. They have what a lot of people describe as basically a supermajority. I mean, they have the ability to do virtually anything at this point from at least a governance perspective. There's like nobody's holding them back. Do you think we're going to see any change? I definitely do think we'll see a change. I think uh, now the problems that I tried to identify in Vancouver's dying that I found are not just limited to the municipal government. So the so 
the provincial government has a huge role to play. The federal government has a, a role to play. Um, but it, at the very least, I think the new mayor and council will be way more supportive towards the police, much more respective to the police, um, provide more resources to police that will obviously help on some of the crime issues. Um, as far as some of this this kind of this spiral of, of homelessness, crime, mental illness, that at its root is this chronic level of addiction and drug addiction. Um, I mean, I think they might be able to make a dent in it, but a lot of that's going to have to come from the provincial government and, and also the federal government yeah. at, at the end of the day. So I think they can 100% make an, make an impact on pri- uh, crime, uh, you know, supporting public safety, these kinds of things. Um, but there is a very serious drug addiction problem right now in our in our society. I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands, I'm sure, are are currently addicted addicted to fentanyl, heroin, and other hard drugs in Vancouver. Yeah. And uh, until we get a handle on that, um, you know, all these homelessness. I I really view it as homelessness crime. These are these are symptoms of of drug addiction. Even a lot of the mental illness that that people like, you know, it's the new buzz one of the new buzzwords one of the many buzzwords of the last five six years at the root of a lot of that mental illness is addiction yeah. and, and drug addiction so um i think uh that's going to the municipal government has an important role to play on that but it's it's uh, they can't do it alone well speaking of uh dr- drug addictions um you mentioned earlier about your interview with cody hall on on the, in this film and he lived in an sro mm-hmm. for those those listeners who don't know what that stands for single room occupancy, uh, it's these types of hotels. In fact, when I interviewed Sam Sullivan, former mayor of Vancouver, um, who lives in Yaletown, he talked about the Howard Johnson hotel that the, the uh, BC housing of the provincial government purchased. And they basically turned it into a home, uh, uh, you know, took this hotel. I think they did it for Paul's hotel in Victoria too, I think. They did a bunch of hotels. A bunch of them. There and they was, just, yeah. yeah. And I don't know what the experience has been in Victoria, but here in Vancouver, there's like, there's no so-called wraparound services. There's actually no policing. There's nothing. It's literally you put these people in these hotel rooms. And then from what you described on this interview with Cody is they're almost like it's worse for them because they're just all centralized as victims to these praying drug pushers who come along and, give them, you know, a, a chance to get hooked back onto drugs. Do you think this is the reality for most SROs? I, I do. And I think the, the, the evidence bears that out. I believe 50% of the overdose deaths in British Columbia occur in SROs in, or in other supportive housing. Yeah. Like inside. That is them. the data. I mean, so isn't that shocking? It, it, it is. And it makes you wonder, it really makes you look back and look at that data and data and say, what are we doing? Like it, it, yeah. this is because we're also spending billions of dollars on this problem and the results keep getting worse and worse. Yeah. And, you know, as, as a British Columbian resident and taxpayer uh, who's concerned about obviously the moral aspects of this problem, but also the, the financial implications, uh, it just seems we've, we found the worst of all possible worlds. It's bad for taxpayers. It's bad for the communities that have to live with these SROs and you have the crime that explodes in the, in the surrounding, you know, the radius around them. Uh, for people that just want to enjoy, you know, walking downtown Vancouver that no longer feel safe, uh, for emergency services that are overburdened, and our taxpayers who keep having to spend higher and higher taxes uh, as inflation also continues to go up, up, and up. And and yet, uh, results that they're getting for these tax dollars seem to be getting worse and worse. Yeah. And that's, it'd be one thing if you had to pay more taxes and you saw these people all get into rehab. And, you know, I think a lot of people would be okay with that. But to watch yourself spend more and more, your hard-earned money 
going to words of like an endless black hole where everything just keeps getting worse. Yeah. I think it's time to start asking questions. Yeah, I agree. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, I, I think it was, I think it was Mayor Phillips uh, who was the one who coined this uh, concept of four pillars. But if you just think of the, the visually, the concept of four pillars, there's four pillars with equal amount of weight, right? Mm-hmm. They have equal distribution of weight. And then the, those four pillars hold up whatever you're trying to hold up. But as you pointed out, the problem that we I see as well is this push towards uh, you know, harm reduction by way of safe supply. And like it seems like we've lost the plot on the war on drugs. We've lost the desire to get people off these drugs. It's almost like you said, I think, in your film, that like this is the best these people can hope for is to just keep them on a, some sort of safe supply in perpetuity. And, and I, I often think like back to the days of Reagan and the sort of war on drugs. And I think the reason that we lost the war on drugs is because we stopped fighting it. I think that there's, um, so to your point, a lot of the people pushing the, the safe supply of drugs are almost treating it. And I think it's actually kind of depressing. They're treating it like a palliative issue. Like these people, this is the best that most of these people can ever aspire to in life. You have that kind of thinking reinforced by people like our chief medical officer, Bonnie Henry who had a quote that I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially said, if you're addicted to alcohol, we've got programs that can get you off. However, you know, if you're addicted to opioids, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, you're going to be on some kind of, uh, you know, uh, the, the best we can do is ease your suffering, essentially, right. yeah. which really outraged the literally thousands of people that have recovered from opioid addiction, mm-hmm. who said this isn't true. This is, you know, denying basically my life experience where I was living on the downtown east side. And, and now I'm, you know, clean, have a full-time job paying taxes and, and raising, raising my family. Yeah. And it's a story that I heard over and over again. And really the, the, and that's actually the biggest surprise I got was the response interviewing recovered, uh, recovering addicts. I mean, that they use the term recovering addicts, like once an addict, always, always an addict, always in recovery. Right. It's an ongoing process. And they were the most passionate people I, I had, and it's I featured in the documentary, you know, these addicts sitting here that said, you know, if when I was in the downtown east side and I, if I was offered safe supply, I'd either still be on the downtown east side or I'd be dead. <laughs> and to hear this coming from people who, who lived it yeah. um, is much more powerful than anything I could have said or done. Yeah. And I think it, they, you know, it's, they spoke for themselves. Aaron, let's pivot to the BC Liberal Party. Or think today their new name is United BC. Is that do you know the name? I'm not sure. Is that the they, name? Uh, United, United BC? I think that's the name. I don't know if they're officially using it yet <laughs> okay. or what's going on there. It's, uh, BC United. BC, oh, BC United. Okay, thanks, Karen. So last time you were on Coastal Front, you were here because we were interviewing candidates who were going to be running for the leadership of the BC Liberal Car- Part uh, Liberal Party, um, and so that's come and gone. Um, and you were not actually even given a chance to go and run, which I was quite disappointed to see. Uh, the um, leadership election organizing committee for the BC Liberal Party basically said you couldn't run. Um, what was the reason why you were your candidacy was rejected? What's the what's the maybe the I'll ask you two part question. What's the official reason, and what do you think is the real reason? Well, the official reason is, uh, well, first of all, I, I mean, you, you touched on it there just so, so people understand. There's basically this unelected uh, committee of seven people called the LEOC or the Leader, Leadership Election Organizing Committee uh, who make the decision. Now, obviously, it's politics, so not everything is as, as simple and straightforward as that and who's actually behind the scenes. 
uh, you know, helping to exert pressure is, is a much longer conversation. Uh, their communication with me and what they said publicly uh, also doesn't match. Ostensibly, they said publicly that that I didn't uh, share their values on a, a series of, of issues. Uh, I think they mentioned reconciliation and tolerance, just a bunch of buzz. They basically threw a bunch of like word jumble buzzwords together and, and threw it out there. I actually love the fact in their public statement they use reconciliation, even though none of the people on the committee are indigenous. And the one indigenous person on the race who was Ellis Ross yeah. openly said, is a friend of mine and openly said that I should be in the race. So I had right. no problem with it. So yeah. it was just them. I, th- I actually think it's kind of shameful to hide behind First Nations to, to you know, to justify your political maneuvering. What actually happened is uh, there's two, I'm, I'm not sure the percentage, but there's two things that happened behind the scenes. One, a majority of the leadership of LEOC, of that committee, uh, are, are openly federal liberal. And uh, to put it mildly, um, I mean, the BC Liberals traditionally have been a you know a coalition of, of federal liberals and, and some federal conservatives. And um, I've been pretty uh, blunt, I would say, with my criticism of, of Justin Trudeau over the past three or four years. Uh, so, you know, they weren't, I think, keen on having somebody who was so staunchly opposed to, to Trudeau liberalism and the Trudeau government. So that was factor A. And then factor B was the other members on LEOC were kind of part of the BC liberal establishment, party establishment, and they already had their candidate. I mean, they had Kevin Falcon from the beginning. They didn't want to really have a race. They weren't looking for an actual exchange of ideas, uh, serious debate or discussion. Uh, they were looking for a coronation. And um, they uh, and, and they had their candidate. And when it came to our campaign that we'd put together, you know, I can't say with any, I'm not going to sit here and say with any certainty how exactly we would have done but they viewed us i know people on their campaign they viewed us as as an unpredictable element that they couldn't control you, you rattled off some of my social media following at the, the beginning yeah we saw how many people pierre Pauly have signed up in the federal conservative party leadership online uh the bc liberals are very weak party uh falcon won with like ten thousand votes that is not a, that is not a a lot of of signups. I don't know how many, I think Pierre Pauly have probably had 50,000 in, in BC. Yeah. So if I was able to get a fraction of that, I, I could have, you know, put their coronation at risk. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, that wasn't something that they were, they were willing to entertain. You used um, a phrase, which is the, um, uh, about the, the leadership election organization committee, LEOC, um, as party establishment. And uh, that's been my observation is that, uh, even though there's a name change here, especially under Kevin Falcon, it seems like it's just the same old BC Liberal oh, yeah. Party. It's lipstick on a pig. Yes, <laughs> that's the 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 new uh, new coat of paint on the old car. Um, did your experience of going through that and being rejected and seeing that um, did it is it has it is it going to deter you from wanting to run for politics again? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's it's. Um, well, I, d- I don't regret doing it because because I learned a lot. Uh, basically, their kind of smear campaign that they they ran uh, on me when they ejected me from the the race, I don't think stuck at all. You know, I didn't lose any supporters. I I gained supporters throughout the process. I, I learned a lot about how political parties operate in Canada. I actually think it's not. I think it's kind of a system from a bygone era. I think there's if you if you look in the United States, for example, what happened to me wouldn't have been possible. Um, and I don't think it's democratic. 
Uh, there's a lot of people who don't vote or feel you know apathetic or disconnected from the political process and they ask themselves how did we get these options and in canada there's not a good explanation i mean you have david eby who's premier right now who nobody voted for obviously not in a general but even in the ndp leadership race i i mean they kicked out the only person that was that was credibly challenging him right on uh, trumped up charges so you know i don't think that's a proper way to run a democracy to be to be honest i think we need more political participation, not less. Yeah. But I will also say that, uh, you know, the BC liberal in the every political party is different. And the BC liberals are definitely, you know, kind of the poster child for for elitism and, you know, ethical or moral uh, corruption. And um, not all political parties are like that. I, I don't I don't think I've done stuff with the Federal Conservative Party, for example. And they still have a lot of those trappings of political parties and inside baseball and people do get screwed over, but it's not even remotely comparable to what happens. Really? Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, here they, they I don't want to say they auction off seats, but they're not running. I mean, the BC liberals aren't running competitive nomination races and ridings. They just hand out the ridings to whoever they want to, for whatever reason, whatever backroom deal. I mean, your guess is as good as mine, right. what backroom deals are yeah. going on to give uh, you know, so-and-so, uh, South Surrey by-election there, they just handed the nomination to someone, the Kelowna seats last time. So it's, um, I don't think it's a proper, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a way to run a democratic party in the 21st century. Well, I can, I can definitely say, and it wasn't because necessarily I was, uh, was supporting you or not. It, just the fact that you were not able to run was a very big disappointment for me to observe from a viewpoint of like just simple democracy. Like, I mean, for, I think about my own grandfathers who went and, you know, fought Nazis in, 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 in Germany. And, uh, like, why, why would they do that? They, they went there to fight for democracy. And so for a guy like you, I don't think you're that contentious, but even if you are, I mean, the way I see it is you should have the right to run and have your voice heard. And I got a chance to interview and I got a chance to interview many of the other candidates that were running for the BC liberal party. Um, and I just thought, you know, when I saw that you weren't allowed to, like, it was very disappointing for me. It, it really just made me feel like, oh, this is just the same old party, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of other people who feel the same way as myself. Um, if we were to put that behind us, though, OK, mm -hmm. let's just like put like put put our grudges or whatever views we may have. Kevin Falcon is the head of the B.C. Liberal Party. Do you feel that this guy is the long term answer for the the what is it called again? The United B.C.? B BC United, sorry. I Whatever remember. they're choosing to yeah. identify as. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so do you think he's the long-term solution for BC United? I mean, I think he's got a pretty uphill battle. I mean, the, the party is, I, I always say, uh, you know, this isn't, you know, I'll never get a job as a pundit on a on a talk show because uh, this isn't as, doesn't generate headlines as as well. But, you know, the degree of uncertainty in politics, the uncertainty, ban the, the band there, is is always greater than I think most people make it out to be. So uh, we will see. We'll see when the next election is. But I mean, if you were a betting man, I mean, there's no way you would bet on on Kevin Falcon and and uh, the the BC Liberals or BC United winning the next election. I think the smart money. I mean, everybody across the board is on on David Eby and the NDP yeah. uh, winning. And um, things can change in politics, obviously. But I think that's just where where things are now. Now, uh, I've never met. Uh, Kevin and obviously what happened happened. That being said, I think he is a more competent, articulate leader than Andrew Wilkinson was, who was the yeah. the, the outgoing leader of the party. 
So uh, and and David Eby probably isn't as impressive and I think as relatable as like a John Horgan was. So um, so we'll see and we'll we'll see what happens. Um, but there are some that th- there are a lot of structural issues with with uh, w- with that party. So I mean I think Falcons' best hope probably is is David Eby or the NDP mess up really bad and then you know he just kind of gets the default uh, opposition vote. Okay, so we're going to jump into uh, this conversation of politics, but I want to pivot to to federal politics first. I had the pleasure of interviewing Pierre Polyev shortly after Aaron O'Toole was announced as uh, leader of the Conservative Party. I haven't had a chance to bring him on again. I'd like to. So if you're talking to him, tell him, give me a call because you've interviewed him four times. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like Pierre. I think he's uh, a a great opportunity for the Conservative Party to to lead uh, and and, uh, compete against the Liberals in winning the next election. The next scheduled election would be October of 2025, as we've seen in the last decade and a half. We've had a lot of uh, early elections here in Canada at a federal level. Um, Do you think that Pierre is a good fit for Prime Minister of Canada? I do. I do. I think he is. um, You know, I think he's it's it's actually odd to watch him. This this thing that happened recently with Jordan Peterson and free speech is an interesting example. He's I think he's he's a leader. He's not someone, so many of our politicians, especially in the Conservative Party, I view in recent history as being essentially weather vanes where they stick their hand up in the air and try to try to guess where the political winds are blowing and just go there. Whereas Pierre Polyev, I think, really leads on issues. He takes stances and through his um, articulation of, of his points and values and principles that I think a lot of Canadians shares, he brings people along with him. So he's, he, you know, he's, there's two ways in politics to win. It's to, to lead the parade or to try to find out where the parade's going and jump in front of it at the last minute and you know cross the finish line. Right. And uh, Pierre, to me, is a leader, and he's he's very articulate. And um, most importantly, which I think you need in the media environment in Canada, is he's politically courageous. So he's not afraid to you know stare down the media. And he the way and I think this is probably because it's how I how I view the political landscape as well. And he's obviously got a huge following on social media. I remember the CBC at issue panel ridiculing him when he when he announced he was running for leadership and oh you know I don't he's never going to win and Jean Charest he's got these I mean it wasn't even close not I even mean, close he, yeah he he ran over everyone and just made me laugh because it showed how out of touch this punditry class classes and one of the reasons I think is because with social media when he's preparing his messaging he's doing his his speeches he's communicating to people. He's writing to communicate to Canadians, uh, middle-class Canadians across the country. And what conservative leaders were doing before and other politicians were writing speeches uh, for the House of Commons, preparing remarks, answering questions for the media to try to generate the right CBC headline. And of course, when CBC writes a story about a peer speech, what are they going to do? They're going to use like three sentences, right? So, yeah. when you're, so when you're writing for media, especially in the 90s and the 2000s, that's what you're doing. It's like you're repeating the same thing. You're trying to get that sound bite that the news is going to use. Well, now in the age of social media, you can just put your stuff out there directly. Yeah. You know, when Pierre does a video that gets half a million views, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter what the CBC reports on or takes. A, he can speak directly to Canadians. And I think that's what he's good at. And he's realized that. And um, I mean, Trump championed that, right? Trump championed that. I mean, there were there were. Um, Barack Obama did actually, you know, Bar- Barack Obama was you know, he had obviously you know channels like CNN on his side in the first place, but actually 
And of all the politicians, global, like major politicians, I mean, Barack Obama was the first to like really leverage social media and being able to communicate directly with his voter base. Yeah. So Obama start really started that trend. Uh, you saw Trump do it in his own way. And then that whole having that leadership. I also think it's it's um, this this is going to get too much in the weeds, but there's it happened in our economy. You're obviously familiar with like specialization and things like that. And it's happened in politics as well, where the for a lot of cases, the prime minister has become almost like a PR spokesperson. I mean, Trudeau's not writing any of his own speeches or coming up with policies, basically yeah. just the the pretty face that's presenting them all. And I think that disjointedness is 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 an issue because people want to know who they're voting for. Yeah. Um, and I think Pierre gets 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 back to that a little bit. He is the brains behind his own campaign. I mean, he's got lots of smart people around him, but but he, you know, he yeah. thinks about these issues. He's well informed. When I do my interviews on him, he's not preparing. He he knows no, the issues not at inside all. and out. And he's completely authentic. He's it's completely amazing. Completely authentic, and yeah. it reminds me more of a Thatcher or a Churchill yeah. and someone who's their own own person, own man in his case. To be a devil's advocate, where do you think Pierre needs to make improvements on? Where do you think is going to be his biggest challenges in trying to, you know, if we did get a, go into a general election? I mean, he, you know, he's the 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 votes that both he and the, whoever's going to run for the Liberal Party are going to working for is not their voter base. I mean, the Liberal voter base will vote for whoever's running the Liberal Party, and same with the Conservatives. There's that middle group of swing voters, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to be Pierre's challenges in in convincing certain people to 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 swing his direction? Well, it, his overarching challenge and the challenge for the Conservative Party will always be the fact that you have to fight against the Liberals and the media, and the media in this case have even more. Uh, it's not like their normal you know left of center bias. Their their jobs are on the line. Like you know this the CB. If you work for the CBC, your <laughs> job's probably on the line. If yeah. if the Conservatives win, if you work for one of these media organizations that have gotten over $650 million in media bailouts, your job's probably on the line. So um, that's going to be a challenge, to say the least. And as far as from an electoral perspective, I mean, Canada, despite its size, is a very urbanized uh, uh, country. Uh, a lot of the swing seats are in the suburbs of especially Toronto and Vancouver. Um, you have a lot of new Canadians that live in these areas. So being able to to reach them and communicate with them um, is is going to be his challenge. And obviously he's he's trying to do that. And uh, I think he's had some success and we'll see if uh, that uh, translates uh, into the next election. I'm sure if there's an election held today, he would he would win uh, maybe a minority government or something like that. So we'll see how the, I don't think there's going to be an election soon. And we'll see how well, that was going to be my next question. So the next scheduled election would be October of 2025. This is January of 2023. So we're basically talking almost a full two years from now. Mm-hmm. Do you think we'll see an election before October of 2025? I do, but I don't think it'll be much before. I think it'll be probably either in that spring um, or or fall uh, before that. So what's that 2024? So, yeah, I, 2020, I think it, 2025, like spring of 2025. Yeah, that would be my guess if I uh-huh. if I had to guess. But but we'll uh, we'll see. I I really I'll put it this way. I really don't think there's going to be an election in the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wouldn't shock me either if it went uh, the full the full four years, which yeah. I don't think has ever happened in in history. The thing about politics, what with the minority government? You mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. I could be I could be wrong about yeah, that. But, I'm not sure, but yeah. I I don't think it has. Uh, I think Harper went two and a half years once. Big thing is that these political parties, I mean, they're all self-interested bodies. So yeah. um, for an election to happen, essentially, either it's going to have to be in the liberals' best interest to call the election, or it's going to have to be in the NDP's 
best interest to bring down the government. Right now, yeah. it's in neither of their interests. Yeah. But if one of those things change, um, you know, we could find ourselves in an election quickly. I don't yeah. see that changing, but it, I can't even remember. You know, a, yeah. a week in politics is a or a week is a lifetime in politics. Yeah. And uh, so something could happen. Trudeau could, you know, get himself in another huge scandal and the NDP see an opportunity or, or something like that could happen. So uh, we'll see. So, Aaron, here's my take. Here's my two cents of where I think we're going. I agree with your comment. There's only two people who are going to call this election. It's going to be either Trudeau or Jagmeet Singh. It's the only two, right? I mean, the Conservative Party can't pull it off. Uh, the Bloc Quebecois don't have that kind of power. Um, I believe that the uh, NDP will not call an early election. I don't know. There's, I can't imagine any circumstance under which it's to their advantage. They are near bankrupt, uh, like financially bankrupt uh, political party that every election has lost seats. So I think they're not going to move away from Jagmeet Singh. I think they're stuck with him because he's done a good job of like being this sort of good. I, if you need a spiritual leader in bank in, in Canada, like that's my guy. Right. But, uh, you know, as far as, you know, being a prime minister, I mean, there's just no chance. But they but they're they're stuck with him and they can't afford another election because they financially or for their seats. So I just can't see that happening. The Liberal Party, of course, could do that. I kind of vision this as like Pierre Polyev is like that uh, up and coming boxer. He's like the he's like the Mike Tyson who's coming up the ranks and like everybody sees him and nobody really wants to fight him because they're worried about losing. But as he gets as time goes by, he actually gets better. And so there's even more reason to want, not want to fight him. I think what's going to happen. And I also think that uh, Justin Trudeau is becoming quite uh he, his past is due date with the, the Liberal Party. And the Liberal Party will eat their own, right? Like, I think that he has to find himself his own exit or they will pump, bump, bump him out anyways. I don't think Pierre, I mean, excuse me, I don't think uh, Trudeau will ever want to go against Pierre in a general election because he's going to lose. That's my opinion. So I think what's going to happen is somewhere between now and probably the end of 2024, um, we will see... Uh, so actually, I said earlier, it's three years, two years, actually three years, right? Mm -hmm. Almost three years. So I think somewhere between now and the end of 2024, you will see someone else, maybe it's a Christia Freeland or somebody else take over from Trudeau to try and refresh the brand and reinvigorate their voter base and those swing voters in the middle with some hope that they going into October of 2025, they can beat Pierre. But I look at the momentum that Pierre is creating for himself and it's just like, it's just getting bigger as the months go by. And I actually think that the media like CBC, it, they're a good, they're a good um, uh, sort of indicator. Like they're trying even harder than before to like discredit this guy. So I think like that's going, that shows you the kind of momentum that he's building. So anyways, that's my take on where I think we're going federally. Yeah, the only thing I'd, I'd say talking to people in Ottawa is don't underestimate um, uh, the the arrogance of Trudeau. Like, like I mean, he's no he's he's a good campaigner. He's very good on the campaign trail, but he thinks he's really good. Like, I don't think he thinks he'll lose to Pierre. I think he um, will think that he can beat him. I think those two really don't like each other. I think that's also quite gen quite genuine and yeah. genuine dislike there. Yeah. So you know, I, I mean, I'd love to see a Trudeau uh, Polyev. Uh, showdown that would be pretty awesome it'll be it'll be um and you know by the way uh i will say for my critiques on the on the bc liberals compared to federal like you know pierre leading the conservative party going against trudeau i mean that's that's a that's a that's healthy for democracy in the sense that that's a clear choice um where voters get to decide the future of the country that's being uh, laid out for them and in bc i don't really think we have that kind of contrast right and i think contrast is 
is good for democracies. Yeah, I agree. Well, leading into provincial politics, then, uh, as you mentioned earlier, David Eby's was sworn in as the 37th premier of British Columbia, replacing John Horgan as the leader of the B.C. NDP party. Um, do you see much change happening uh, under David Eby versus what we saw with John Horgan? Um, I think it's it's to be seen. I mean, if Horgan, if, if, I think, I mean, he got sick. I don't know if he got sick during COVID. I can't remember exactly the timeline of events, but during COVID, the provincial government really kind of took a hands-off approach and just said, you know, handed it over to, to Bonnie Henry Bo- and everything. Bonnie and, and yeah. And, uh, you know, BC Health or whatever. And yeah. um, and then... Adrian Horgan Dix. Got, yeah, Adrian a- Dix. Adrian Bonnie were the two leaders. Yeah, and then Horgan yeah. tried to, I think, honestly, it probably worked out well for him politically, just kind of tried to play the, the benevolent, uh, you know, king or whatever that was kind of removed from this so if anything so if his government made a bad decision he almost like didn't wear it because yeah. he was like it wasn't him doing it and he could kind of yeah try. i remember there's the museum fiasco as well and uh with the in victoria yeah uh so but let's be honest that's pretty minor i mean like that was like you know out of all the scandals that the ndp have had from the past days um i mean they didn't even actually write a check for the bc museum they just they made a call and then they quickly reversed their decision to cut the political damage. Yeah, so, but it was just interesting how the NDP and a couple different uh, files have been able to kind of reverse themselves, but like Horgan didn't really wear it because it was like right. somebody else reversing themselves and Horgan wasn't wasn't really seen as, a I think, a hands-on premier. I think that actually worked for him. David Eby seems much more hands-on, Yeah, um, which could go two ways because if the NDP make mistakes, um, or get caught wasting taxpayers' money, or or the problems and with crime and everything continue to persist. I think he'll wear them a lot more. Um, whereas uh, Horgan seemed kind of almost removed from those day to day day to day issues. Yeah. So uh, so I think we'll we'll see. I think it's um, as a lo- as a local on. British Columbian, probably not an NDP voter, but living here in this province, are you more excited about having David, David Eby as our premier? Or would you, if you mean, if you could wave your magic wand, would you still prefer to have John Horgan? Well, I'm in a unique position because I'm in, involved politically. I, I I mean, I like John Horgan more. Um, I think that might be also being from the island. So I don't know if you, so I knew John Horgan growing up. I, I was going to say, I, I, I figure you must say John Horgan because like he's from Langford and you're from Langford. Yeah, right? I know. I played <laughs> hockey with his son and yeah, yeah. Uh, Juan de Fuca. Okay. And, like, uh, John and and my dad would be up in the the stands talking and everything. Yeah. So before he was a, an MLA, so um, so yeah. So I prefer prefer John. I also think John is from the moderate wing of of the NDP. Now I David Eby I know know less about. I don't think he's from. I should say I said moderate wing. I think John is from the labor wing of the NDP is maybe more accurate. I think Eby has got more of a an activist background, but I I also think he's. He's intelligent and obviously knows that, you know, if the NDP don't stay somewhat close to middle of the road, they will get booted out of office. So I think he's he's smart that way. And will you know, these politicians, the interesting thing I'll tell you when I ran as running that campaign for two weeks for BC Liberal leadership. So I hadn't had a lot of conversations with MLAs prior to that. But during that two weeks, I sat down with a lot of them, like I think around a dozen. Really, and the thing that amazed me the most is I was going into it thinking, 
okay, where is this person on the political spectrum? Are they more conservative? Are they more towards the liberal side? What issues matter? Are they going to be concerned about, you know, my opposition to the carbon tax or, or, you know, like, like, where are they going in? And it was amazing how basically none of them cared. And all they cared about was like, how are you going to win the next election? Or like, and you know, how do I win my seat in the next election? So I would never <laughs> underestimate wow. how most politicians, their, their soul and, and overriding focus is, is winning basically. Yeah. Um, which, which isn't necessarily a bad thing in a democracy because it, it, it means, you know, basically enacting policies that the public supports. But I think it's just important to, to remember to view things through that, that framework. Yeah, that's uh, well said. So the next general election for British Columbia is meant to be in 2024. We have a majority NDP. So unlike the federal government, uh, there's no chance of the BC Liberals or the two BC Greens, uh, you know, calling an early election. Um, so a first question would be, do you see a, a potential of any kind of early election here in British Columbia? I do. I don't. Um, I've been told. I mean, there's there's different schools of I, I mean, the the conventional wisdom seems to be I, I mean, David Eby, I think, has said publicly there's not going to be or, or wasn't going to. But um, I uh, so I think the short answer is we'll see. It definitely there doesn't have to be. But I also think that. Look, the NDP are way up in the polls right now. The BC Liberals don't even know what the name of their party is at this current moment. Yeah. Uh, they're disarrayed. They're we like, certainly don't. <laughs> yeah, we don't. They're 13, 14 points behind in the polls. It, um, and I think David Eby, honestly, from a Democratic perspective, have, uh, you know, unlike when Horgan pulled the, the plug on his own government early, uh, I actually think David Eby has a Democratic, um, would be justified in doing so because Nobody voted for him, and mm -hmm. he's got this new set of policies he wants to enact. And the opposition has a new leader. And yeah, I, I honestly don't. I think he'd be somewhat justified in, in calling an election. But uh, so we'll we'll see if he does or not. But um, yeah, if it's uh, politicians, you know, if they see the polls a certain way, and there's a big uh, because of inflation, you know, a big revenue surplus uh, that they can promise a bunch of things. Yeah, then you never know. Yeah. So. Let's assume there is an election, either an early one or takes place end of 2024. Do you think that Kevin Falcon really has any chance of, of, of beating David Eby in the next election? I mean, I think he has a chance, but I think it's a small chance. Mm -hmm. And I think probably, which is one of the reasons why I think there could be an earlier election is because I think the longer you wait, uh, the greater the uncertainty grows. Again, you know, a week, uh, a week in politics or, or a week is a lifetime in politics. So um, who knows what will happen a year from now. There could be yeah. scandals and, you know, all sorts of different things could could end up uh, occurring. But um, yeah, I think, look, Kevin Falcon is going to be, he's going to be, uh, it'd be generous to say he's the underdog. I would, I would say that. Yeah. And uh, the smart money is definitely on the NDP. Yeah. Um, winning another uh, election. For what it's worth, my view is that uh, we don't have an early election uh, only because I don't see any reason why uh, other than maybe the one you pointed out, which is maybe David Eby feels like a moral obligation to like prove that he's meant to be the premier of the province. Um, but they have they're in such good spot in the polls. They've just announced a recently like a huge surplus, which no one was expecting. So like they can't even the B.C. Liberal can't even like 
claim that oh they're they're being foolish with taxpayers money because there's just an abundance of money um and i think personally my expectation is the economy is going for a deep south dive here in 2023 and that politicians are going to be ones who take the brunt of that as elections roll through globally uh i think we're going to see a global recession and people are going to get voted out whether they're on the right side or left side of the spectrum if they're in power they're going to get voted out uh but i think that it's not going to be bad enough that by the time the election comes in 2024, the people are going to want to skewer the BC NDP unless there's some kind of scandal like we saw with fast ferries years ago. Um, and I just don't think that Falcon has the ability to 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 lead this uh, BC Liberal Party, even if there was some uncertainty around there, you know, like or some some kind of scandal or some uncertainty about the economy. So. My take is that we've got a BC NDP party for at least another probably six years. That's what, that was, that's what my take is. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's probably pretty accurate. The other the other factor, um, and uh, yeah, I've been helping them out a bit, but there is the the concert the new or the the newish BC Conservative Party, which will okay. be interesting to see how how they um, formulate themselves before the next election. But there's also well, uh, if an organization like that got traction, it would even be more reason why this like this is a vote split. I know Mo Mo Amir is not a he doesn't believe in vote splitting, but I think it's a, it, it's totally real. And yeah. and if you all of a sudden had a, like a a decent candidate for the BC Conservative, unless they really were have had a Pierre Polyev kind of uh, social media following and charisma, uh, you know, you now it's even more reason why the BC NDP would because you'd be splitting the right side of the vote. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, I would say probably uh, justifiably so in the sense that uh, you know, like I, the, the one thing I'll say about like the BC Liberals, the BC United uh, Falcon, I don't think they deserve to win the next election. I mean, I'm not no fan of the NDP, mm-hmm. but I also think you kind of reap what you sow in in life as in or politics as in life. And uh, I mean, I don't think they've offered anything to voters. They haven't changed. They just it. seem like the same old party. I mean, there's a lot of the MLAs are still the same people from back in the Gordon Campbell, Christy Clark days. They were in power for so long. They became, you know, addicted to power and the benefits of having political power, being able to, you know, all the benefits that, that you accrue along with that. And, uh, you know, they kind of want to do anything to, to get it back. But I don't think that's how you should be. I don't think that's why you should ever get into politics or, yeah. or democracy. Yeah. So politics explained, uh, you, you've completed uh, season two with your sixth series. Obviously this, you know, knockout Vancouver is dying film, which is two and a half million views. What's next for Aaron Gunn? Well, what's next? Uh, well, in the coming weeks, we'll, uh, there's a couple things, but uh, so I'm gonna keep pumping out the videos, try to return to doing some, some short stuff, which actually was my bread and butter before politics explained and kind of racked up some of my biggest views. And then uh, I think there'll be a decision here at the end of the month about whether to potentially do a fourth uh, season of politics explained. I thought- this A fourth or a third? Fourth. Fourth. Oh, yeah. oh, I apologize. This was this season two or season three? This was season three. Yeah, oh, I apologize. Three, I said yeah. it a couple of times season two, but it's season yeah, three. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all they're all standalone episodes, so yeah, you can, people jump around and, and watch them. However, so we actually, we've done uh, there's seven ones, so nineteen episodes. So so okay. they so whether we're gonna do another one, uh, it's actually the process I like the most because right now we have a, a long list of like twenty potential topics, and we start you know weaning it down, and you know. Have, you know, what do we think people want to care about? What, what interviews can we get? 
So uh, conversations around potentially doing that. And then uh, on the political front, uh, we will see. Um, I've got, uh, obviously, I'm a big supporter of Pierre. So we'll see uh, how that develops. Uh, there is this provincial conservative party, which which I know some, some good people that are involved in. So uh, I think... Uh, it won't be uneventful. Maybe that's uh, that's all I can say about the future. <laughs> I'm sure it won't be. Yeah. Well, Aaron Gunn, thanks for being on Coastal Front once again. Uh, it's nice to have you back here and talking about these topics. Congratulations on Vancouver is dying. For those folks who haven't watched it yet, go on to YouTube, uh, search Aaron Gunn, A-A-R-O-N. You also have a website and you always see obviously social media. Yeah. Um, What's the best way to follow you? I guess it would be your, I mean, Facebook, 107,000 followers. And yeah, yeah. You can always go to AaronGunn.ca, but to, to really watch my content, uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, uh, Instagram, Twitter, I mean, pretty much wherever you consume your content. I mean, yeah. go to one of those social media platforms and you can uh, follow or subscribe. And the other thing is, I thought today while we're here, it yeah. is, there's a happy birthday due. So I would like to wish a happy birthday uh, to Canada's first prime minister, Sir Johnny McDonald, obviously okay. founder of the country. <laughs> and, uh, do you have a statue? I got a book for you. Oh, here. That, oh, wow. Thank you. Look at this. So Johnny uh, McDonald, there we go. That's the first part of a two part. Uh, it's a two part biography. That's up to confederation and it really heats up. So if you enjoy the first part, I would highly recommend checking out the, the second part. Have you read it then? I have, I yeah. have. And, uh, it's, it's actually such an, I mean, no one, tells the story. I mean, you never hear about this yeah. incredible, I mean, really without him, I don't think this country would even exist. Yeah. So if you love Canada, if you like uh, what he built uh, with the Fathers of Confederation back in 1867, despite uh, our uh, our flaws and think Canada has been a net force uh, of good for the world, I strongly encourage people to to learn more uh, about McDonald and about Canadian history. And he, so he'd be turning, his birthday was in uh, 1815. Today. Yeah. So he's... Wow. Uh, 208, I guess, well. if you were still alive. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for the book. All this good, big, thick book, good to read over uh, spring break. Aaron Gunn, congratulations on your, sh on your film, Vancouver's Dying, and uh, thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me, Andrew.